And I wondered if there's a sense then in which the, the liberal commitment to factuality and empirical analysis handicaps them in the business of politics, which has to involve belief to some extent. Welcome to another episode of America Explained, a podcast that brings the important voices and perspectives shaping American politics, foreign policy and culture to an international audience. So hello, welcome to another episode of America Explained. I'm your host, Andy Gawthorpe. So much of politics is about stories, stories we tell about what happened in the past, how we should understand our present, and even what our future should look like. And so many of the successful political leaders in modern democracies have excelled precisely because they tell a really simple story which allows people to understand their own place in the world, their place in the political community, in a straightforward, meaningful way. And for those politicians who aren't able to do the same thing, who really struggle to define what it is that they mean exactly in the public mind, it can be hard for the public to know where they stand and why they ought to identify with them. My guest today is Professor David Ricci, an Emiratus professor at Hebrew University in Jerusalem, who studied this phenomenon deeply and identified what he calls a storytelling gap between the left and the right in American politics. In his 2016 book, Politics Without Stories, The Liberal Predicament, Professor Ricci analyzed the use of stories in American politics and came to a striking conclusion. He said that one of the reasons liberals in America struggle to produce durable governing majorities is because the American right is so much more successful at telling simple stories about what it stands for and what it believes in. These are stories about things like how markets are wonderful, tradition is terrific, and government should be small. But liberals, he argues by contrast, often come across as technocratic and unfocused, prone to make long lists of technocratic policy proposals which don't resonate with the public in the same way. In this interview, I caught up with the Professor Ricci to ask about about his book and how he's interpreted the last few years of American politics through this same framework. So David, welcome to the show. Thank you so much for being here. My pleasure. So I'd like to ask you at the beginning, so I, I think a common pushback, which you might get a lot in response to this idea, is that liberals actually do tell stories. So they tell stories about America's long struggle for racial equality. They tell stories about the long struggle for workers' rights in America. They tell a story about the need to provide a decent standard of living to all Americans. And I wondered if you could start by explaining what it is that differentiates these stories from the ones that are told by conservatives, and why it is that you see the conservative stories has been so much more successful. Andy, I, I, I'll answer that question, but I want to preface my answer uh, with just uh, a comment on this business of political stories, because uh, as a political scientist, uh, I read a lot of academic literature, and uh, what you can see very clearly is that when uh, historians, social scientists, sociologists try to study the business of stories, what you come up with is this. We really feel that there are political stories out there. Occasionally, somebody comes up like, uh, I don't know, Ronald Reagan or Margaret Thatcher and, and uh, talks about the marketplace. We say, well, that's a great story about how the market will solve our problem. So we identify some speech and some writing as stories. On the other hand, we simply don't manage to identify what is a story very precisely. Where does it begin and where does it end? And is it powerful or is it weak? Uh, is it just a metaphor? Is it an anecdote? We get kind of into this question and don't have a solution. Now, we know there's something very important and we try to study it 
and we have difficulty. So with stories, to come back to your question, you're saying, well, there are stories among the liberals and there are about, as you say, the struggle for workers' rights uh, and uh, rights for people regardless of gender or race and so forth. And these things have improved over the years and that's a great story about the nature of American public life. Why is it that the conservative stories seem to be more powerful to somebody like me who's looking at it? It's true that the Democrats have these stories and they, they, they talk about them sometimes, but they don't really believe very firmly. That is, they don't have that much intensity here because when one says, I believe in racial equality, somebody else is talking about, yes, but what happens to my job? And if the other one says, well, I believe in union power and helping the workers, then somebody says, yes, but you've left out the women. And so then you go to another story about women's rights and so forth and so forth. So in the democratic camp, there are different stories jostling each other and they don't jibe very well. And so you don't have the same power of the stories. Instead, Democrats are like adding up votes from different groups of people, trying to say something nice to each of the separate groups, but mainly getting out there with their pragmatic suggestions of how to improve life for this group or that group or the next group and so forth. Yeah, and so I thought one of the really interesting observations from your book, which was written in 2016, as I said earlier, but you said that liberals tend to be stuck in a constant mode of panic about all of the problems facing modern society, from climate change to neoliberalism to governmental tyranny to racial inequality. And you said that been focused on so many crises at once, and I think, if anything, this is a phenomenon that, that's only increased in its kind of importance since then. You said that this forces liberals into a kind of list syndrome in which they promise hundreds of different reforms to address all of these different crises and the sum total doesn't add up to anything coherent it doesn't spell out a simple story about the future of society in the same way that conservative stories do i wondered though if your view of this has been affected at all by the sharp leftward turn in the democratic party over the last four years and particularly the emergence of grand visions like the green new deal within the party if you think of the Democratic Party primaries in the year 2020, the leading people after others were weeded out were Bernie Sanders and uh, Joe Biden. Uh, but the truth is that Biden won. Most of the important people in the Democratic Party as an organization, the officials, the elected officials and so forth, most of those people were supporting Biden and not Bernie Sanders. And so in fact, I would say that it's kind of surprising that when Biden was elected, he actually seems to be more left than he was in his campaign. He's making yeah. proposals to spend an enormous amount of money to deal with infrastructure and jobs and education, pump a lot of money into the system. That is big government, really big. The Republicans are objecting, of course. We'll get to that later, I'm sure. So he turns out to be more on the left than I think people were expecting during the election campaign. Maybe he was just playing it very safe, or maybe he, at his age, has decided that, well, I can, uh, you know, I can start taking chances, do something uh, really unusual, and maybe you know, leave my mark on history and be well-regarded. So yes, there is the list syndrome, 
as I describe it anyway, it's my term, where the Democratic Party is likely to make a great many suggestions about solving problems of you know, climate change and uh, pollution and, uh, and uh, education and uh, racial equality, et cetera, et cetera. Lots and lots of proposals because a lot of people are making these proposals and congressional districts and senatorial districts. So there is a list syndrome. And it's because the Democratic Party doesn't have an overall story there. They pride themselves on being pragmatic. And when you turn to some of the people who are considered to be the philosophical wing of the Democratic Party and the liberal movement in America, when you turn to those people, they will say, I found some of them saying point blank, our real problem is not that we don't have good ideas. Our real problem is we have lost faith. We don't believe like we used to believe during the time of Franklin Roosevelt and the New Deal. So when somebody says today, a new New Deal or a green New Deal, it has some weight, but we're not getting as excited as we were during the Depression when a lot of people were down and the president came and he spoke confidently and powerfully, like Winston Churchill in, you know, at the top of his forum. We don't have that today on the Democratic side of public life in the United States. you write speaking of liberals that quote their preference is not something they freely choose because in a sense they're congenitally unable by personality to feel that stories grasp reality more accurately than science this reminds me a lot of an old quote from nietzsche in which he says that the the conditions of life and he means by that the prerequisites of life kind of the things we need to exist in this world might include errors and what he means by that is that nobody can live without articles of faith, which might be incorrect and, and reach beyond our reasoning faculties to figure out, but they're things that we fundamentally believe in. So they, you know, we don't care if they're errors or not, because there are beliefs. And I wondered if there's a sense then in which the, the liberal commitment to factuality and empirical analysis handicaps them in the business of politics, which has to involve belief to some extent. Uh, let, let's... Let's draw a distinction, Andy, between liberals who are active in the in politics and the liberals of a society. You know, if you divide a society into people who are more liberal and more conservative, the people who are more liberal, that's an enormous historical question. Who are these people over the last 200 years? What have they been doing? Uh, why, why do they do what they do? Now, one of the reasons is a loss of faith that the Enlightenment 200 years ago really undermined the church, the aristocracy, the monarchy, all of the beliefs and the institutions of the old society. And the people who did this you know, evolved into the 19th and the 20th centuries as the people who don't believe in the church, they believe in science. Mm -hmm. uh, they believe in education, in universities, and they created enormous universities. They built it all up. And they believe in reason, and they believe in common sense. These are you know, huge historical trends. But the end is, when you look at society today, you say, ah, there are some people here who seem to be the children 
of the Enlightenment in that sense, they're skeptical. They, they try to come up with a practical proposal. They try to say, well, if we have this problem, what's the scientific answer to this problem? And so in a way, when Nietzsche says, you have to have a little bit of faith in life, you know, you have to make a leap, he's right. I think he's absolutely right. But you have to consider that it's like saying, if you don't have a scientific answer, you've got to just dream up another one. If these people are liberal in that historical sense, it's very hard for them to turn around and say, well, okay, I'll be a little bit religious. I'll, I'll believe in something. You know? It's not that they're all atheists. It's that the general feeling of the liberal part of modern society is we're not looking for faith. We're looking for concrete answers to our problems. We have this long list of problems, but generally speaking, the liberal part of modern society are the people who, uh, they, they, they find it very difficult to recapture that faith. Now, you might wanna ask when you talk about American politics, so how is it that in the 1930s and 40s, there was this great confidence among liberals? They had faith, things are gonna get better, we're working on it. And they, they, you know, they, they had the story of the New Deal and so forth. And then little by little, it kind of ebbed to the point where today, a lot of Americans are worried that they're gonna lose democracy because you know, a thousand kind of oddballs went and broke into the Capitol building of the United States. It became very symbolic. It's a very worrisome thing that had happened. I think to myself, look, there are 330 million Americans if a thousand people broke into the Capitol, it actually is a small number of people. You're not really going down the tubes. Uh, it, can, it can be handled, but it is frightening. It is really frightening, sure. The more frightening thing to me is 74 million people voted for Donald Trump. Who are these people? They're not the ones who broke into the Capitol. The, you know, the take off a thousand, so it's seventy-three million nine hundred and ninety, whatever. I, who are these seventy-four million people who took up with Donald Trump? And I don't think any of us has the answer to that question yet. Yeah, and it was really interesting the arguments you make about liberal philosophers, liberal thinkers in the university, and how they don't provide a solid, simple basis for liberal narratives. So among the points you make are that liberal philosophers and academics often use a lot of jargon and they compete with one another by her splitting, you know, this is how you get ahead in an academic career by showing that you do something different to the person who came before you. But this kind of undermines the idea of working on a common project. And by contrast, the conservative intellectuals that you talk about and that we see in the public sphere all the time tend to have their home in magazines and think tanks rather than universities. And it's interesting to consider this alongside criticisms that have been made of, um, well, so, so the Democratic strategist James Carville recently said that liberals practice what he called, quote, faculty lounge politics which is that they talk in a way that's out of touch with the majority of the electorate. You know, it's not the way that normal people talk. Most people in the voting public don't have a university degree in the US, but liberals speak in a very jargon-heavy kind of uh, um, very educated way. And I wondered if there's a sense in which this close association that exists between liberals and the university produces a style of thinking and of rhetoric which is politically unhelpful, and liberals might actually benefit from being less self-consciously intellectual. 
no, I see. I think that what's going on, first of all, your description is accurate. A lot of the liberal thinkers are in the universities. They're writing and they're, you know, passing these things on to their students and the students pass it on and so forth. Uh, some of them also are from the universities writing for various leftist, left-wing kind of magazines. Uh, but going back to the historical analysis, just very briefly, the university is one of the results of the Enlightenment. Now, Oxford, Cambridge, uh, Bologna, they were there earlier, but compared to today's universities, they weren't really universities. They're you know, colleges. The, the universities that we know today, the research universities, these come after the Enlightenment. They represent science. They represent common sense. They represent reason. They represent testing, empiricism, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. And so the people who are there are part of this post-Enlightenment consciousness, which I've described as mainly liberal, the liberal part of society, the modern people. And so, yes, a lot of the liberal thinkers are in the universities, and they're not going to be less university-like. That is, the, leave aside the jargon, but they have this view of the world, which is fix things up. Whereas the conservative thinkers, you're right, you will find them mainly in the think tanks or they, they'll be inspired by material that's coming out of the think tanks. They deliberately promote ideas, which they say, look, these are not new ideas. These are true with a capital T. They have always been true before me and after me, they are going to be true. We haven't discovered anything new. This is the truth for Christians. It's been there for 2,000 years. Uh, so in a way, they don't belong in the university. Uh, and the university doesn't have many of them because the kinds of things that they publish are considered to be closer to, um, well, you know, I, I don't want to say propaganda, but they're ideologically disposed in a way that the university is not because the university is constantly examining and re-examining old beliefs and say, well, this one was a mistake. So that's what goes on in universities. It's a very congenial place for liberals and it's not going to change, not going to change. If you take somebody in America like Barry Goldwater or Ronald Reagan, you find in their speeches a continual reference to big truths, things we already know, things we have to go back and do instead of letting the liberals run away with the activity uh, from year to year and influence the actions of the government. Yeah, and I think that this intersects with the changing nature of the two parties' electorates in a way that's interesting and also problematic for the Democrats. If you go back 30 years or so, it used to be the case that Democrats would win, usually white voters without college degrees, which is a huge part of the American electorate and one that's very important because it's overrepresented in those Midwestern swing states. But nowadays, the best predictor of what party someone will vote for is to look at their education status and lower educated voters are much, much more likely to vote Republican, whereas Democrats now have almost their base is much, much more highly educated voters. And that makes it really difficult for Democrats to simultaneously motivate that highly educated base while trying to win back these lower educated voters that are very important for presidential elections. But, you know, you'd usually message and talk to these two groups in different ways. And it Yes, yes. Uh, if I can just throw in one more phrase here, 
uh, from from the great sociologist Max Weber. Max Weber says modern men and women are disenchanted. They they have rejected the old truths, the old verities, the old stories, uh, the old institutions, and they're deconstructing and reconstructing and making over lots of things. But if they're disenchanted, it's very difficult for them to go back and say, well, tomorrow I'm going to become enchanted. You're listening to America Explained, a podcast about American politics, foreign policy, and culture for an international audience. Like it? Then tell a friend and help us grow. to shift the conversation as, as we kind of draw to a close to talk about very very contemporary events in in american politics so in your book you talk about how conservative stories are mostly about values and small government and and free markets and well we were just talking about disillusionment which is a good segue to talking about donald trump i I've wondered if you know there's a way in which conservatives have become disillusioned in their own stories and or at least the way that their stories have been complicated by the rise of donald trump you know, this is someone who has no fixed ideology, who clearly has no fixed commitment to conservative values, and he says and does things all the time which aren't congruent with these conservative stories. So I wondered if you thought that the conservative story had, had succeeded in subsuming Trump in some way, or has he changed that story somehow, and particularly through his injection of, of such an overt type of nationalism and racial rhetoric? What we know of as as conservatism, some there, there are some ideas there which which make Trump look really bad. For example, if the conservatives believe in traditional values, then they are quite aware of the fact that Trump is not a very virtuous guy in his own life. Mm. So, in a way, it's not that Trump. Uh, uh, was saying something uh, that fitted well with the conservative narrative. On the other hand, Trump attacks people as enemies, the liberal professors, the liberal judges, uh, the liberal uh, media people, the liberal this, the liberal that. And those people are, in a way, the enemies also of the more traditional conservatives. So in a way, uh, Trump is, is he's just somebody who, who was convenient, I think, for conservative voters in America. And it's true, he refers to these stories, small government and the bureaucrats in Washington uh, and traditions. He refers, refers, and everybody understands that he's not very consistent about any of this. What he really was doing that was helpful to them, they were counting on somebody like Trump to introduce, for example, conservative judges to the Supreme Court. They said, if he's elected, we'll get the right kind of judges that we want on the Supreme Court. Or if he's elected, they won't use the government under his administration to regulate business here or regulate business there. That, that is, they were counting on him to do some things that they wanted to get done, and they weren't really looking too much at him as an individual. They liked what he was doing. He was going against their enemies. So he's, it's very difficult to fit him in to all of this business. I think these stories are continue to be very powerful and be very persuasive, persuasive to a lot of people. 
when when outside observers like me or maybe you also look at some of these stories you say well wait a minute this one doesn't actually fit in with the next one small government doesn't fit in with national growth or tradition doesn't fit well with the the, the marketplace because the market actually by creating new things all the time it uh, it undermines tradition. So the stories don't, don't hold together very well, but separately, they're really very powerful. And in a way, the conservative part of modern society is making a little collection of these stories and overlooking some of the internal conflicts because the stories all move in the direction of defeating the people who are our enemies and dangerous to us uh, for example, the business of appointing the, the right people to the Supreme Court, there the idea is we have to get people there who will overturn the liberal abortion concept that a woman is entitled to an abortion. The stories are, are separately powerful, but even more powerful than that is we know who the bad guys are and we're getting together to bump off the bad guys. So, in a way, we don't look too closely at each individual story and say, well, is this exactly right? Doesn't matter. It enlists the emotional commitment of enough people so that they get on board and together we're moving in the right direction uh, against our enemies, against the bad people, against the liberals. Yeah, and as a so as a closing question, um, it's often said nowadays, and, and I agree myself, that American democracy is in a very, very perilous state right now. Huge numbers of Republican politicians attempted to overthrow the results of the last presidential election, and if Republicans win control of Congress in 2022, there are, I think, very serious questions about whether they would actually certify the victory of a Democratic presidential candidate in 2024. So I think we're much closer to a breaking point than many people realize. And I wondered if, in closing, if, if you think that liberals' inability to tell stories is one of the reasons that we got into this position, and what, if anything, could be done about it, if that is the case? It is obviously worrisome to look at what happened at the Capitol building a couple of months ago, and also to see how many Republican uh, uh, officials, even, were willing to... Uh, uh, go along with Donald Trump's idea that the election was somehow taken away, stolen from him. I, I myself personally, I have the feeling that this is not so much a matter of stories. It would help if the pro-Democrat liberal wing of American society had more faith in itself and more powerful stories. I, I have the feeling that what we're really going to have to deal with in America and in many other countries as well is that the entire discourse, information, television, iPhones, uh, internet, all of this is changing the nature of modern society, of how people relate to each other, uh, to the point where some of these old ideas about how important democracy is to us, all of this is kind of changing and the changes are in a way so large that we're not exactly sure what's going to come out of it. And, and it's not just in America. That's what I wanted to say. We're talking about America today, but it's not just happening in America. This technological change in the information system. And so in a way, Trump represents what we're beginning to call populism. The idea that a leader will emerge who will say, I represent the people. 
against this enemy and that enemy and so forth. It's not just in America that you have a Trump. It's something else which is even larger is going on. And we're so close that it's very difficult for us to understand this, I think. Uh, but yes, it's, uh, it's frightening to look at what went on in the Capitol building and, and, and things got out of hand. And you know, they got out of hand, but by historical international standards, they really didn't get totally out of hand. What happened there was small compared to the French Revolution and storming of the Bastille. It's necessary, I think, to look at that uh, you know, in proportion somehow, although it's very difficult emotionally. Uh, and so the danger looms and people are very worried about it. And I think that one of the things that Biden is doing is he's speaking very calmly uh, and trying not to excite people too much and, and trying to get together enough votes so that they'll actually be able to pass his program, which is, of course, against the small government thesis or story. His program is a big government program, just like the New Deal was. Uh, and I think you're absolutely right that the target for all of this, in a way, is the election of next year for Congress and a third of the senators. But meanwhile, I think Biden is making the right noises. He's making the right kind of common sense speeches about we have big problems and the market's not going to solve them. Uh, we have to help the market. We have to add, we have to regulate. We have to uh, put up the money, even if we have to borrow it. Yeah. So, Professor Ricci, thank you so much for these reflections. And just as a reminder to my listeners, the book that we've been talking about is called Politics Without Stories, The Liberal Predicament. Professor Ricci also has another book out recently, which is called Political Science in the Age of Donald Trump, which I very much recommend as well. So, Professor, thank you so much for joining us. You're very welcome, Andy. It was a pleasure. That's all we have time for this episode. Thanks for listening to America Explained. You can contact us on producer at america-explained.com or through the America Explained Facebook page. I'm your host, Andy Gawthorpe. Designer and advisor is Janice Killian. Music by Soundwave. America Explained is an APD media production. See you next time.